Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 47. I need to focus on what I want, not what I don't want. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. On today's show, we have Jared Kirst. He is a turf grass farmer that is transitioning to being a regenerative agriculturalist. His journey has taken him through goats and now to cows. And I encourage you to stay on and listen to his episode, a really good one. However, before we get to Jared, we'll do the 10 seconds about my farm. It is spring here and we went through a drought last fall, late summer, into the winter. We are getting rain now. So that has really improved our conditions. While I think we're still classified as a D2 drought, we have been improving greatly. Though a little bit more rain will get us out of that. I know there's still lots of others still suffering with the drought. For our grass, it's turning green and growing. Not quite enough to start rotating the cows on it yet, but it is getting close and I'm excited. Let's talk to Jared. Jared, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We are excited you've joined us. Cal, thanks for having me. I listen to it every week when it's on and I'm glad to be part of it. Jared, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Yeah, so... I run a farm outside of Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is in the mountains in between Vail and Aspen. And the farm's about 7,000 feet. And I've been, I moved to that farm as the office manager in 1999. And at the time, the farm only produced Kentucky bluegrass sod. That was what I was hired as as the sod farm manager. My wife joined me after she finished graduate school, Jenny. And if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't still be doing this even though she's not a farmer and has no interest really in it. So I have a little different paradigm with the family farm, if you will, than, than a lot of folks. But what happened was we built a landscape supply business on the side of that. This business was started by a uh, lady, Macy Berkeley, and her orthopedic surgeon husband, actually, as a way to fund a nonprofit hospital in Mexico, which is how I contacted them. So that was, they were the ownership and I was the management. I took over management of the whole operation in 2002. And actually in 2010, which was post and the depth of that recession, we were still running a sod farm, but it actually became much less profitable. And our revenue had really moved over to landscape supplies. But to be honest, we also had extracted all of the value. I shouldn't say all, but much of the value out of the soil, a monocropping bluegrass sod year out and year on. And turfgrass farmers, if you've known any, a little bit of an arrogant bunch that we think we can just fertilize and spray our way out of any problem. In 2010, the owners who had been in Mexico then for almost 10 years, living there full-time, absentee owners, they, they were not comfortable owning it anymore with the lack of profits, but it made an opportunity for me to buy it. At that time, 2012, I agreed to buy the business and the farm put the farm under contract. And right then is when I also started recognizing that if I was going to purchase this, 
land-based business, which it, it finally occurred to me, that's what I was running, that I wanted the land to actually be getting better, not worse. And to be honest, the input costs were skyrocketing. It was taking, we're usually talking thousand square feet in a turf farm world, but six pounds of N per thousand, spraying four times a year to just fend off weeds that were rampant. And so it was, it was costing for every square foot of sod, just costing four or five times as much. So that was where my journey started. And it turns out me getting out of the business side of it, I had 20 some employees and trucks running and I had a business degree. In fact, that's what I ended up with in college, but I didn't, I didn't realize how much I liked the farming side of it because I just had farm managers and I was a gentleman farmer, just telling people how it worked with fertilizer and, and NPK was something, language I knew the reductionist talk about, and I was the expert in the Valley on growing turf grass. But to be honest, I had no concept of soil health or anything like it. So I started researching and in fact. The old owner had actually given me a book by Joel Salatin called You Could Farm. Oh, yes. And I set it on the shelf and said, oh, who needs this kind of garbage? Who would have known that in six or seven years after that, I'd be sitting in a classroom with Joel Salatin for two or three days. Oh, yes. But in that process, uh, healing the soil, of course, I still stuck to my, I don't know what your conventional roots, and I planted a bunch of GMO alfalfa oh, okay. as my rotation, thinking that would solve the problem. And it's pretty amazing. That's an incredible plant that can penetrate really bad soil and grow in our climate. So that part was great. But the first trial I did turning that back into sod, it was amazing. In the soil, it actually improved, but very temporarily. But I smelled the smell of good soil for the first time through the back of the tractor. And that was probably around, I don't know, 2014. And I realized right then with that smell, and you might know it, if it smelled good soil, that was actually my goal is I needed to fix that. So I started going to things like Acres USA conferences. Oh, yes. Reading the Stockman Grass Farmer. My, my uncle, who's a farmer, cow-calf guy in eastern Colorado, got me that publication, the Stockman Grass Farmer, and it turned out to be a paradigm shifting. We hear that term a lot, which was a buzzword in college and business school, but it's a real word in the agriculture world now. But my paradigm shifted. And I picked back up that Joel Salatin book. I went to a class with Anibal Portomingo, which is part of that Sockman Grass Farmer group, because it became clear to me in these books that animals and animal integration was the only way to heal the soil. And I was a plant guy, right? I, I grew a grass. That was my profession was a grass grower, but I knew that I needed to change something. So we brought on goats first, right? We thought it was going to be a marketing thing. Total disaster. I got that herd. After three years, up to 75 animals. And it was a struggle to market them because I didn't know what I was doing. I was overgrazing with them and destroying things that I thought I was helping. And I eventually just sold the whole herd off. And I got a question for you, Jared, there. When you got the goats, did you have prior experience with goats? As a kid, I had to milk goats, which I couldn't stand. And the there was a Billy, and I'll still call them Billies and Nannies, by the way, regardless of the bucks and does that the highfalutin <laughs> crowd uh, do in the boat, goat community. But I had a Billy that would, it would eat cans. That was that kind of Billy. And I learned later when I bought a couple of registered Kiko New Zealand Billies, I had this whole idea. 
that I was going to have this herd of really hardy animals and I would use them for marketing and I'd sell them to local Hispanic folks that would use them for parties. That was just slightly off. I mean, it, all of that could happen, but I couldn't keep goats in to save my life. I had netting, seven strands of electric. I couldn't sleep. It was a disaster. And the first time we got them, we bred them. I didn't have a tight enough of a breeding window. My wife was pregnant with my first child in February. She was due in February. And I was having goats coming out in the middle of the night. I was up. I didn't sleep for two months because for two months they were dropping babies on in the ice. And I would be feeding, yeah, baby goats. I'd put coffee in their mouths, trying to resuscitate them. And so we learned a lot of things. It was in a, the next year, it was much more compressed. We didn't actually have them kidding out until May. And so everything survived. Everything was healthy. But it didn't make them any easier to keep in. And those billies that I bought just ended up being the bane of my existence. Just disgusting creatures that I couldn't. They say you can't keep in a hungry goat, but a horny goat is impossible. So, so well, I sold yes. the whole herd, just liquidated it. And I, I just backed off and said, okay, no more animals, which is what put me in such a like a resistant mode when it came to cattle. But that class with Anibal Portomingo, I thought he was just going to tell me, Jared, you're a farmer. You know how to grow grass. So plant this plant and this grass and this forb and those cattle will grow fat and taste good. It was way more complicated than that, obviously. He's an amazing guy, right? PhD, and he taught me all kinds of things. And But that was in 2015, I took that class. And it was supposed to be with Alan Nation also, but he died two weeks. Two weeks before that class, he died. I was so bunked because I never got to meet him. But I met his wife, great lady. And so it was a really important class because it started me down there, but it took another four years for me to actually get cattle on the farm. And in that time frame, I also sold off the landscape supply business this to somebody else to run it because I couldn't do it. I just wanted to farm. And so last year we got some cattle from my cousin, Chris, who runs a meat business in Eastern Colorado called All About Nature. And he lined me up with some cattle because he was having drought problems. You know, they, they struggle with that. My farm, by the way, is fed with uh, a year round spring, an artesian spring. Oh, very nice. It's an incredible resource and so blessed. And so drought is less of an issue to me. So he knew I had the grass. And so he called me up and asked if I wanted to buy some. So I bought 15 of those animals. They got dropped off. And we were on our way to learning how to grass finish beef. I had plenty of training and <laughs> I've been through classes with Jim Garish, management intensive guy. I've read so many books and been to so many conferences. But at the end of the day, it had to, we had to get them on the ground. And they had to start eating those pastures I'd been growing because I'd been working on diverse pastures. The only thing grazing was elk and deer. And so we got, we, I called right away for a processing slot last year. And the first processing available was December 27th. So I was hauling cattle in a blizzard on the day after Christmas for my first cattle. And it was worth it, that part. And so the we're, we're back in it. And I guess I should say that some of my first cattle, I actually sold, resold to one of my mentors, Jake and Molly Shipman. They run a farm here um, called Dooley Creek Farm. And they're, they're doing grass-finished beef and pork, but they needed more beef than their acreage would handle. So I sold them some. 
which was a great collaboration really, because he came over and gave me some confidence. I was afraid I was going to kill my cattle because I have alfalfa all over. You can imagine that my neighbors said I'm crazy. They think they're all going to die. But imagine so. So, and I've learned a lot of tricks over the last year, grazing cattle on, on really heavy amounts of alfalfa. And anyway, it's worked. And Jake came over and he said, oh, I'll give it a shot. Because Annabal had told me that in Argentina, they graze a lot of alfalfa, sometimes 70% stands. I've pushed that to 90% a couple of times, but it's working. And the meat, Cal, the key was the meat came out really good. And it was, it was all matching up what my mission statement is, which is renourishing earth. Having degraded the soils, personally been in, responsible for soil degradation for so many years. I was at one of those acres conferences and heard a guy in a classroom I was walking by talking about taste buds and how that related to organic farming. I had no real idea, but it was Fred Provenza. If you're familiar with him, he wrote a book called Nourishment. And that day I stepped into that, that class and listened to him. And then he and I became friends. And this is before he wrote the book. And that conversation and his work is what gave me the why behind what I was doing completely made the difference in the why was I trying to heal this soil, not just for my ego or for posterity, although I do want my kids to inherit something better than said I found it or whoever farms it. But Fred totally changed my program. When he came out with his book, Nourishment, it just, it took me a while, even I'd, I'd already read all the papers that he'd written to support that book ahead of time. It still took me forever to read just because of the depth of the, the implications of that wisdom body, the animals being so intelligent. Although in a, in an operation like mine, where I'm buying yearlings who've been on a, a farm, uh, eating corn stalks and oat hay and things, they didn't learn a lot from their moms about grazing. It's one of those things that there's a balance to letting the animal pick and choose what they want. Cause they still have that innate wisdom, but also not letting them just eat pure alfalfa and die from it is the trick, I guess. Nourishment. That, that book I have, I haven't read it yet. I actually, I hate to show you my bookshelf because right now my bookshelf has more books to read than it does that I've read. And I'm an avid reader, not so much lately, but I'm about to get started again. So that's right up there for me to get started on. I'm looking forward to it. Jared, let's jump back in your journey just a little bit. So you mentioned you went to some conferences, some classes with different in individuals. How, how valuable did you find those conferences? Because I know a lot of people's like, well, we got to leave the farm because oftentimes those conferences aren't nearby. Sometimes we get lucky and they're close, but how valuable were those conferences for you and classes? Cal, they were invaluable. I recognized that there was a lot of, that was a three-day conference. It could have been 20 minutes of those three days that made the difference but I wasn't going to experience that without being there. And to be honest, because we're so seasonal at 7,000 feet, it's a blizzard up here. And there's really nothing to do on the farm except for plow snow. So in my context, it's worth traveling. And you're right, they're all back east mostly. There are some in California, but really anything in Colorado. But those classes, you get, you just get sometimes an epiphany of something. And to be honest, I've had those, I've learned things from my employees before. Because I believe you can actually learn something from anybody, yes. Cal. And I, the older I get, I realize that everybody has something to teach me, even about my own farm. Obviously, when you sit in a class with somebody like Jim Garrish or ranching for profit school, right? 
these guys, they know a lot and they're aware of that. But at the end of the day, some of the people in the classes or just talking to other farmers, it's amazing what you can learn. So for me, it's been invaluable. I wish they were sometimes in like warmer places where I could take my wife and kids on dual purpose vacation, but that doesn't quite work. Well, you have to be careful about that because so I went to the South Pole Conference field day and sell, and I tried my best to sell it to my wife as a vacation. She never quite bid on that. She kept saying it's a farm trip. I said, that's, what, that's why we can afford it. I hear you. But it's a vacation. Now, granted, I'm not the smartest because it's hot in the summer in Oklahoma. Well, they had the last field day for South Pole in Louisiana. So in Louisiana, it's a little warm this when it was. So I went from hot to really hot. So I've got to work on my planning. Um, I am looking forward to, just on a side note there, the South Pole field day next year is going to be in the autumn. They're, not, they're going to get away from that hot weather. And um, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I think it's worth going. And I, there's a lot of them I'd like to try to go to, but it's just a matter of time. And it's like everything. If I can listen to it on a podcast or a recording, I'll try that too. There's, there's a lot of conferences and things I'd like to attend, but I can't attend too many just because my W-2 job. I've got to be able to be there and do my work. So, so that causes some limitations there. But like you said, I think I love podcasts, obviously. I loved it enough to start one. But there's some valuable resources out there. This podcast has a niche for those getting started and learning from others. But you've got the Herd Quitter podcast. You've got the Pennsylvania Grazer. You've got the Shepherdess out of Texas. You've got, in fact, I listened to a new podcast. Um, try and think of the name, Head Shepherd. And it's from Australia. And I actually got to it because they were talking about twinning in cattle, which I think is an interesting subject. And I, I got over there. But there's lots of podcasts out there and lots of niches. If this one doesn't fit you, I hope, it, I hope our listeners like it. But if you don't, that's fine. There's others. Go find one that you like. And then maybe come back and try mine later on. Maybe I won't be so bad. But... Find what's beneficial to you because I think podcasts are such a, a wonderful device for learning from others. I agree with you and I appreciate you starting it. I, you know, sometimes it's a little odd listening to people in a conversation, but I've gotten really into it. The more I've done it, the more I like it because it's like I can sit and hear what people are chatting about and it's real low pressure. I mean, there's, there's any matter of podcasts out there, I realize, but. That's why I appreciate yours, that it's unpretentious and it's really just a sincere way to get grass people talking about grazing animals. And I appreciate well, thank that. Thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. So you got your yearlings and um, grass finished them in middle of December. I'm actually going to finish some next week at 18 months. I have 10 slots open at the processor, but I think I'm only six to seven seem ready to me. And I'm, I'm new at this, Cal, judging the readiness. And I've listened to as many guys as I can, my uncle talking about the brisket. And I've had a couple of those cattle that I can get close enough to squeeze on that brisket under there and to see if it feels like a football. But you know, the fat 
ripples in front of the tail head. I'm doing what I can to judge that. But the reality is that I want them to finish, you know, and one of the complaints that people in my life have had of grass finished beef is that it's not really finished. It's just processed. So I'm trying my best. And last year there was pretty decent marbling. I didn't get it graded, but everybody was enthused about the amount of marbling. So we're going to, we're going to keep pushing that and I'm going to keep learning. You know, I mean, I, I'm going to see if I can track it a little better because the data would be helpful, but we'll see. So I got four slaughter dates this year, one each month. So that'll tie up with my marketing and we'll see if I can get it all sold. For your cattle, what breed are you using? So these are black baldy and some just straight Angus. When I started researching what I wanted, you know, originally I thought I wanted Scottish Highland cattle or something ridiculous. And I'm not saying that for everybody it's ridiculous, but for me, it doesn't fit my context. I need them. I don't, I don't want them in the winter. They would live great here. But so my cousin found a cow calf guy who's using a lot of um, those, is it PCC genetics? Uh, Kit Farrell. And so a lot of these ear tags have bull names. Yeah, all the, a lot of the ear tags have bull names from the Feral Cattle Company, you know. A lot of those moderate framed Angus genetics. And to be honest, I love the way they are muscly. And the Hereford influence, the ones that are more Hereford, the Baldies, I can tell they're a little more docile. Their frames little. So I'm seeing the differences come out in them. But generally speaking, these cattle, these black cattle, white faces or not, they just seem to be doing really well on my forage base, which like I said, we talked about a lot of alfalfa, but I've been trying to really diversify that over the last couple of years. And again, it's a moving target and I'm not an expert, Cal. That's why I appreciate you're having on non-experts, but I'm learning a lot of things about moving cattle on my landscape. And Pharaoh Cattle Company there that you mentioned, they sponsor the Herd Quitter podcast. They also have, Kit puts out a weekly, yep. it may be more than, it may be a couple of days a week, email newsletter, which is always really good too. So if you're not subscribed to it or not familiar with it, I suggest you look those up because interesting, I just learned about them. It's been a few years ago now, so I've been following much closer and looking for some PCC genetics in my area. I'm more on the, the South Pole, but I have... No issue introducing some PCC genetics in. It just looks, they're doing phenomenal work out there. But I say out there, they've got ranches all over that's working with them. Sure. I just like that he started in Colorado. I'm assuming our uh, source ranch is in eastern Colorado, not far from its original place. So, you know, both of my grandfathers uh, actually ran feedlots in eastern Colorado. So it's a little... Uh, a little bit ironic now to me that I'm I'm in this grass finishing thing, and I think they would be supportive of it, even if I'm not going to feed grain to them. And I think they probably knew Kit Farrell, if I had to guess. So, so one thing you mentioned on finishing your beef is grazing alfalfa. You brought it up earlier. We got to be careful about bloat with grazing alfalfa. In our area of Oklahoma, we have some legumes, but alfalfa is not a a predominant one or even a, a very uh, valuable one in our ecosystem. But of course, as you go west, there's some great ground for growing alfalfa. What are some things that you've learned to decrease the risk of bloat in your cattle? From the books I've learned, but from Anibal Portomingo, we, we talked a lot about timing, both seasonally and daily. The 
clearly the young, lush alfalfa is pretty dangerous. And I did have one, one of my steers last year when the elk herds came through and destroyed all the paddocks one time, the cattle were running crazy in a frosty morning. And one of them must have got into some of that frozen lush alfalfa and was heels up in 20 minutes. I left him to settle down and just, and so they're not lying about how quick that can happen. So that, the timing on that is one of the things I've paid attention to a lot, not getting them on young alfalfa, meaning if there's a lot of bloom happening, it seems to be better. Now, how deeply into bloom we can go, I'm dealing with that right now. I've got some that pretty, it's pretty far along. I can see some bloat pressures in my cattle, but again, it's also training yes. the cattle. Their rumens have to adjust. I've been told that. So it wasn't that I just dropped them on alfalfa. I eased them into late afternoon, very sparse alfalfa, forcing them. So in my moves, we haven't talked about this. I move cattle every day, sometimes a couple times a day, but that's mostly to try to adjust what their rumen is absorbing early. I try to get them on some more fibrous grasses early. When it was late in the fall, I even did that with some dry hay in front of the alfalfa. So I'd make them eat that in the morning. And then, which is a trick that Anibal had taught me about that. And, and then I started interseeding, which is another technique, some sand foin and some a bird's foot trefoil. Apparently, very neat plants, beautiful plants. I like the diversity. And as a legume, they're non-bloating and the cattle can eat them without bloating. But more importantly, they can eat a percentage of that and then eat alfalfa also. And the tannins apparently in that non-bloating legume will tie up those proteins that cause the bloat and help them pass through the rumen. What I've read is just in online stuff is about 30% sandfoin or birds foot trefoil. I have some stands that are 90% sandfoin or birds foot trefoil. So what I've been doing, I sort of call it a pulse grazing or like a meal planning. I force them onto that in the mid morning. I still want to get my sugars up. Well, I hear the bricks levels, you know, that makes sense. They get higher as the sun comes up, but so I'll move them mid-morning onto some of those legumes, and then I'll, I have some areas adjacent to that paddock that'll be pure alfalfa almost, and I'll just let them onto that at three or four in the afternoon when they're as dry and hot as they can be. And up to this point, we've watched them very closely. I also put a bloat block out there with them. The, by the label, they're supposed to eat a bunch of that. To be honest, they're eating small fraction of what it says, but... When they get into lusher alfalfa, they will eat it more. And I'm sort of relying on that animal wisdom that, that Fred talks about. So you're just putting it out there free choice for them. I put it next to their mineral salts. You know, I keep trying to have a, a balanced, I've used a lot of C90 product. My cattle really seem to like that. I like the theory of it. We've used some Redmond. I still have Redmond out there with, with garlic. I've been mixing my own garlic in for trying to, not that the flies are bad at this elevation, but I just don't like them. So I'll keep putting the garlic to them. I also, from listening to podcasts and Will Winters, he's like a vet that wrote a book about natural animal care. I use a lot of apple cider vinegar, put it in the water. I guess that helps with the blow. I have no, nothing but anecdotal evidence at this point, Cal, to say it works, but we've watched him and I've watched some of my animals, particularly late June, early July, I saw some bloat pressure happening in them. So I'd watch them like a hawk, ready to intervene if I had to do a trocar or something, which I haven't had to do, thank God. But they seem to work it through. And these days I watch them and they, 
they'll get tighter in a tick, but they won't bloat and no discomfort. They just keep on going. So with that being said, I've been trying to put low f- like festoleum rye grasses and things in with the alfalfa stands, just drilling it in with a no-till drill. And that seems to help also just to keep them getting some of that sugar and fiber next to that protein. So that's my, tr- my techniques up to this point. And that thing about moving them during the day seems to be really the key. If something happens, if, if the deer tear out a, a fence reel and they squirt into the next paddock that they're not supposed to be in and the alfalfa is fresh and lush, you can see it start to like fill up that room in a little bit. But I very calmly and gently put them back into the right paddock and try to push them somewhere with some of the the more fiber in, in that we so far, we've been really good this year. So I, it's, I know it's a, a bit of a risk, but I feel like given that's my forage base and man, it seems to make meat taste really good. And then at the end of the day, that's our, our mission. And I would think you'd get some nice gain by grazing that alfalfa. Cal, I wish I have a cattle scale and I have not, I have yet to get a, a steer across it to actually weigh them. You know, my, my farm is a sod farm. And so I don't have corrals. We, every time we had to sort them to get into trailers, we have to put up temporary panels, make our own little bud box of sorts. And that's something I would really like to do is, is get something more substantial where I could every once in a while work these cattle, you know, and that's one of the things my, my uncle, my neighbors are like, well, how are you going to treat one if it's sick? How are you going to doctor it? I'm like, (laughs) I'm going to just get it by itself. And I'm going to call a vet, but Thank God so far, just making sure they're having fresh everything, fresh water, fresh pasture. We have had zero health problems. So we'll just try to keep it that way. And then if something arises, I'll call up some of my mentors like Jake and Molly or my friends, Bill and and Kelly Parker. They they have a grass finishing operation in Gunnison. They're really good at it. And so he's been doing it a long time. So. Oh, very good. Yes. And what age are you finishing your steers at or heifers I didn't even ask well it was all steers last year and they finished uh, between 20 and oh okay 22 months I guess it would be this batch the these first ones to go are going to be they're only 16 months I guess and maybe 17 and like I said they're already hitting because they've been on my farm longer and Annabelle tells me his number one rule for finishing is 90 days continuous gains above 1.7 pounds a day. And again, I'd like to measure that, but I'm just watching them buy fat content and watching them fill out. And several, not all of them, not across the board, but I have one or two heifers and then four or five steers that you can just tell they've outperformed all the rest. And they're a little bit of the stockier ones, just from a standpoint of looking at how they're built. And then some of the larger framed ones are getting bigger, but they're not putting on that same fat. So I'm guessing those are going to be the ones that we push towards that harvest closer to 20, 22 months. It's possible that some of them aren't going to make it uh, to to what I feel is finished. And so one of my questions that I'm going through in my head is whether I still try to put them through some kind of a meat program as grind or whether I just offload them somewhere. And If I understand this correctly, you're you're going to try and get them all processed before you're in deep winter and then then you have winter to recover and then get a new set in gal at this point that is my that's what's fallen into what works for me because what i'm talented at at the moment is just growing stuff out there the winter time 
pay feeding. It's going to require a scale and some infrastructure that doesn't fit what I've got on the farm. So right now it just makes sense. And because my primary objective was soil health, I'm not getting a whole lot of soil benefits in the winter. I can't imagine. I know some bale grazing, you're getting some localized areas. And I did some of that in late December last year, but the effect wasn't as much as when it's, when it's growing. If those animals are on that growing grass, you see that soil wake up. So that is, that's right now my program. It's a little different than I had envisioned because I had envisioned the whole like cow calf and multi-generational trying to get their genetic alleles all tuned up. But the reality is these guys that we get our steers from are really good at cow calf. And so I'm going to let them be experts at that. And I'm going to focus on what I'm doing well, which is finishing right now. And it, it fits with my equipment. I have grass seeding and irrigation. So I can plant whatever I want to plant. I've got some sedan oh, sorghum, yes. brown myth rib growing out there, along with some buckwheat and some things trying to, so we'll graze whatever it is, um, to, that'll help with animal health and with soil health. And that's sort of the, the cycle we're trying to push. Well, very good, Jared. Uh, let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about your marketing of your grass finished beef. How are you marketing it? Are you selling halves or hoes, selling it by the piece? Well, the first batches that came out were all by the quarters. A lot of the reason people do that, obviously, is to avoid the USDA by doing shares and those kind of things. But the processor I work with, they have USDA capacity, and I just wanted to go that route anyway. So it was much more about simplicity. But this year we've moved and we we were marketing them just through some email. And I had a Google form where people could order, decide whether they wanted a, a grilling focused quarter, I called it, or a slow roasting, just really focusing on whether it was steaks or roasts, you know, that's sort of the decision <laughs> they get to make. But this year, and it was successful, but a lot of those folks, they, without exception, the ones that gave me feedback loved the meat. But a lot of those folks didn't want all the weird pieces that they didn't like. I've encouraged them to try to get creative and use them. But the reality is if all they want is steaks and hamburger, I think I might want to be able to provide that to them because there's other people who love getting soup bones and shank and liver for that matter. So we are moved on to Gray's Cart. That's Seven Sons online platform. And I'm working on it, Cal. It's up and it exists, but it is not quite functional. And the, the meat is going to be ready. The first meat's going to be ready mid-September. So I need to get my act together. But this is one of the things, it's not my skill set in general, the computer and the marketing. And so I'm, I'm actually working hard now on building a team of people that want to help me in that space. And I have a gal, she mentioned Vanessa, she works with me and she runs a edible forest. She calls it tree farm on my farm. And she does edible heritage fruit trees from our valley, the Roaring Fork Valley. And she has been instrumental in getting this going. Like when I can't do something, she hops on, even though it's not her, it's not really her job description. And she gets my Google form ready or she helps me with those things. So, but this year we're going to, like I said, we've got the grace cart built. Uh, we're just trying to get pictures, which is not my skill set either, getting pictures of meat, but I'm working on it. I cooked up a beautiful brisket last week. We're getting pictures and we're going to try Cal selling, and this is an experiment, but 
we're going to do some quarters and some quote unquote eighth boxes, even though when you get to an eighth, right, it's a little funky what they actually get, but that'll just roughly be 40 pounds of some mix. And then I'm going to try specialty boxes where somebody can just order if they want some steaks. And what we'll have to figure out is whether then the inventory control, which I used to do a lot in landscape supply business, but whether I can do that on a meat level and try to move it, whether it's a little bit through wholesale. I'm intimidated by that. I'm not the guy who just jumps on the phone and calls a chef, but I'm also not the kind of guy who does a podcast. So maybe I can call a chef. We'll get after it. I'm doing my best to try to challenge myself to, this is all sort of new. It's new to my land. It's a new paradigm. Like I said, for me, changing my vocation, if you will. And so we're going to keep pushing And that marketing is a, it's a growth place, you know, and I've read books and got more to read like <laughs> you, Cal, I've got a stack of them still to go through and they're not really the kind I can get on audible. Never ending stack. Exactly. So that's where we're going for marketing, you know, and we're going to, we're going to try to reach out, maybe even do an on-farm event is something I'm exploring. I got some people trying to help me with that. We might do that in September. And again, it's going to take me getting out of my antisocial, and it's not really antisocial, it's just asocial, farmer mode. And I'm going to have to shake hands and answer questions, which I'm more than willing to do. I love sharing with people. You know, I fully understand that. Now, uh, as you look towards the future and continuing down this path, you think you might add some other species or you good with just focusing on the beef? We, we need to. Um, honestly, I... I have some chickens. We've done chickens here and there, small batch. You do a hundred egg layers or 50 broilers. I have not done it sufficiently. We just mostly give away eggs to employees and friends and neighbors, but it was, a, it's a learning about how to grow them and how to raise them because that interaction behind the cattle that Joel always talks about three days later following, I think that makes a lot of sense. Pork. I love the idea of getting pigs. I've sat through a couple classes. The Rodale Institute talked about their method of pastured pork and Jake and Molly at Dooley Creek do a good job on their pork, but they sell out all the time. There's plenty of room in the market for me. It's just, I want to make sure I'm good at what I'm doing before I jump into that next enterprise. But there are things that may force it. My cousins who sold a lot of pork, they, they didn't do it this year because of the severe drought in Eastern Colorado. So I'd really like to team up with them, to co-brand or something, and, and maybe I raise some pork for them because I, I have water and they have skills. And so if we can trade that out, then I can, I'd like to use them as a tool on my landscape because I think they, they play a phenomenal role in an ecology if used properly. And I know there'll be some learning curves there. Probably the last one I'll ever add back in will be goats. And, you know, same thing with sheep. I'm not, I'm not prepared because of the predator load around here. I'm just not prepared to deal with that dogs and stuff. So we'll just take it as it comes. Most important is going to be focusing on the matching the stocking rate of my grass finishing right. beef cattle to my forage base. I'm well way understocked right now. Dallas Mountain and I sat down because they're willing to do that with you at the ranch for profit. And I have the capacity to run a number of animals on this farm. And I just, where's that economy of scale? Where does it match up? properly with my pasture paddock sizes. That's what we're going to see. But we doubled our numbers from last year, and I suspect we'll probably do that next year. We'll just double it, and we'll just keep seeing how that goes. Well, very good, Jared. I'm, I'm excited about your journey there and what you have happening. And Jared, 
it's time for us to transition into our famous four questions. Four same four questions we ask of all of our guests. So I hope you've studied. A little. I've heard all your podcasts. The first question, what's your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? And you've mentioned a ton already. You know, that the book Nourishment and more importantly, just Fred himself and what he represents as a research. He's an amazing guy. And if you ever get a chance to meet him, he's one of those people in this industry who's got every reason to be an egotistical guy. And he's not, he's just the opposite. Oh, very good. And there's, there are plenty of egos in our, in our deal. But I had to say that one of the first books that got me to where I am uh, is the holistic management, Alan Savory stuff. Yes. Just completely shook my program about what I was doing and how I went about it. So I think somebody should read that book probably first. Um, holistic management's uh, kind of a deep, deep subject. It, it is. It's been around for a long time, controversial in some circles, but just people let down their resistance and their pride a little bit and just think about it. It's, it definitely can help you, I think, access all the other information you're going to get and put it in the right place. Oh, very good. Very good. What tool could you not live without on your farm? This pair of pliers is a wild number seven. Well, channel lock. My cousin got me this pair of pliers. I don't know, 2010, he worked for me. I use those things more than the, there's only one other tool that I use probably more often. That's my cell phone. Oh, yes. Cal. So those, those are my two tools, one real tool and one, I'm not sure whether it's a curse <laughs> or a blessing, but that cell phone is probably number two. And I totally get that, you know, in in some ways it's so wonderful and other ways it's distracting from your overall goal. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were getting started? Or what would you tell someone just getting started? Primarily, uh, something my wife tells me all the time is that perfect is the enemy of good. I have put off doing so many things in life and in farming because I didn't think I could do it well enough. And uh, Joel Salatin always, I guess he learned from his dad or something that if something's worth doing, it's worth doing wrong at first <laughs> or something like that. And that's so contrary to my instinct, but it's so right. When I make mistakes, they are just learning processes. So if somebody's starting out, they, you know, some people probably are, need the opposite advice. They need to think about a few things. <laughs> Before they jump in, right? I somebody like me needs the opposite advice. They need to get after it, take some chances. Don't wait until you're getting gray hair to do it. So that's one of the things. And another philosophy that's just been something I wish I had told myself from the beginning was that I need to focus on what I want, not what I don't want. Gabe Brown talks about this. Getting out there and trying to think every morning about what I'm going to kill in my farm, which has been many times what I'm out there doing. What am I going to spray off today? Instead, I need to focus on what I want. And because I never won those world, those war on the weeds, Cal, it, it, I might want to battle, but it was winning. So when I started focusing on just forget about it, heal, just go forward on what you want on the land, it's healing itself. And I just need to get out of the way. So that is, that's what I would tell a young me. Excellent advice, Jared. And lastly, Jared, where can others find out more about you? My brand is Plus Lazy K. And so we have a website, pluslazyk.com. One of my 
poor marketing things. I have a, an Instagram even plus lazy K and I've been told you got to get on the social media. I'm terrible at it. It's not that I don't mind. I like sharing stuff, but I don't get into that too much, but I, I'm trying. And so we have that Grace cart website that's going to be coming up that you can link through plus lazy K. I think it's called Rivendell beef. And my bigger farm business is called Rivendell farms, rivendellfarms.co, which is the address we were left with. So those are the, probably the ways and people can, and reach out. My email address is just Jared at plus lazy And uh, so that's probably how people can reach out to me. I'm not, I'm not sure they'd have any reason to, maybe if they have some advice for me, I'm always willing to listen. So. Well, Jared, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing about your journey and what you're doing. I've enjoyed it and I know our listeners will enjoy it and find value in it. So thank you. Cal, I appreciate you having me on. I've been, I've listened to you. It's good to meet you digitally, if, if nothing else. And hopefully down the road, I'll get to meet you in person sometime. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. You can find the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we encourage you to share our post. Are you a grass farmer? Would you like to share on the podcast about your journey and what you're doing on your farm? Go to grazinggrass.com and click on the Be Our Guest link. We are looking for grass farmers. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.